Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 292 with Oren J. Sofer. I discovered Oren through the Simple Habit Meditation app, and I think he just has a little extra wrinkle or fresh perspective on this meditation mindfulness stuff that just connects and resonates with me. And I I hope it resonates with you. So you all learned one, the top three evidence-based benefits of a mindfulness practice to make you awesome at your job. Two, how a one-minute pause can make a huge difference. And three, how to train your brain for greater attention. So if you'd like to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items that we've referenced, it's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F292. Now here's Oren's story. Oren J. Silfer is senior program developer at Mindful Schools and founder of Next Step Dharma, offering online courses on meditation and daily life. He's a member of the Spirit Rock Teachers Council, a certified trainer of nonviolent communication and a somatic experiencing practitioner for healing trauma. His work has been featured on apps such as 10% Happier and Simple Habit. Oren holds a degree in comparative religion from Columbia University and is author of Say What You Mean, A Mindful Approach to Nonviolent Communication. So thanks to Oren for spending some time with us and thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. It's a trying time that challenges all of our basic assumptions. However, one thing that brings us all together is our common humanity. Now more than ever, teams must come together and work together to solve big challenges. And Trello is here to help. Trello, part of Atlassian's collaborative suite, is an app with an easy-to-understand visual format plus tons of features that make working with your team functional and just plain fun. Teams of all shapes and sizes and companies like Google, Fender, and even Costco all use Trello to collaborate and get work done. With Trello, you can work with your team wherever you are, whether it's at home or in an office. No matter what device you're using, computer, tablet, or phone, Trello syncs across all of them, so you can stay up to date on all the things your team cares about. Keep your workflow going from wherever you are with Trello. Try Trello for free and learn more at Trello.com. That's T-R-E-L-L-O dot com. Trello.com. Here is Oren. Oren, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Pete. Happy to be here. Oh, I think we're going to have a ton of fun here. First, I'd like to get oriented to your history and backstory as a child actor. All right. Yeah. That's interesting. Uh, I was thinking about this before getting on the call. And my motivation for being a child actor is actually the same reason why I do what I do now. So uh, when I was about eight or nine years old, I got really inspired by a movie I saw. And I realized that millions of people have seen this movie. And here I am having this cool thought and thinking about something that's pretty amazing. Imagine if I could reach large numbers of people and get them to think about their life in a different way. And so I decided I wanted to become an actor. And so uh, until the age of 20, I was going into New York, going to auditions. I did some TV commercials, a few shows, some student films, some off-Broadway theater. And then I found meditation and it radically changed my life. And here I am 20 years later 
and realizing that in some very interesting roundabout way, I'm doing the same thing in a different way, trying to reach people and help them to think about their lives in a different way. That is so cool. And, and I want to hear, what was the movie that got this seed planted? <laughs> it's slightly embarrassing because it's uh, it's not a very profound movie, but I think it was like Back to the Future Part 2 oh, or that's Part 3. profound. I get you thinking. You know, <laughs> it was. It was in the 80s. And, uh, you know, I got thinking about time and one life. And it really, uh, yeah, it really made me ponder things. That's cool. I dig it. And I've had those moments as well from, from movies that might be silly or, or, or comedies or, you know, not as, as powerful, apparently, in the eyes of the, the critics uh, in terms of assessing it as a movie, great, but, but that's cool. And right. with, during your... And I was, I was eight or nine years old. Oh, so. yeah. <laughs> yeah. So kudos there. And so with your your child acting, are there any commercials we might have seen or recognized? I giggled in a Lifesavers commercial. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I did a, I was in a, I did an Applebee's commercial. That restaurant's still around. The thing that you might see, actually, that's still out there, uh, if you're having trouble sleeping late one night and <laughs> flipping through cable television, is an episode of Law & Order that's still running where uh, I actually was the murderer. It was a oh, crime, a, a crime a kid of murderer? passion. Yes, a kid murderer. <laughs> a crime of passion was the title or something like that. Oh, <laughs> that's so funny because you're all about the nonviolence. And <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and, and here we have that role. Well, cool. So I, I've heard your voice many times through the Simple Habit meditation app and and i just i just connected with it in in a great way you're, you're just so encouraging so so thank oh, you thanks. for that yeah. and, and so you said meditation changed your life could you maybe walk us through a little bit of what what's the story the narrative of how this unfolds sure uh so i was in college and acting in new york city and uh worn pretty thin just kind of rolling hard and heavy i won't go into details but you can imagine and Parents got divorced. So just a lot of stress, a lot of pressure, uh, had a big falling out with my friends and just in kind of that way that can happen at that particular age. I was about 19, 18 or 19. It felt like my life was coming apart at the seams and I, I wanted to start over. And I ended up hearing about a study abroad program in India, actually, where I could go to a monastery and no drugs, no sex, no alcohol, uh, up at 5 a.m. in the morning, meditating twice a day. And I said, sign me up. I, <laughs> I kind of wanted to clear the decks and just start fresh. And um, some of the teachers that I met over there had a really profound impact on me and kind of opened my eyes to what was possible in a human life and taught me how to understand my own mind. And it started a whole process of me reevaluating my life, reorienting to um, deeper values inside, and starting to deal with some of the struggles that I, and emotions that I had been kind of pushing away inside for many years. Fascinating. And so when you say you meditate twice a day, you know, what kind of length of time are we talking about here? We would meditate for 30 or 45 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Intriguing. And so just the, the process of, was there teaching on top of that? You said there was... Yeah, meditation. yeah. It was yeah. a whole program. So we were we were studying Buddhism and learning about meditation. I was in the process of doing a degree in comparative religion. So that kind of became part of my studies. 
But, you know, I, I kind of had, I guess you could say the good fortune, but the unique opportunity to kind of dive in head first. And I'm guessing most of your listeners aren't going to give up their career and go to India for six months the way I did. But what's wonderful is this, the kind of opportunities that are available today, like Simple Habit or 10% Happier or other apps, those weren't around 20 years ago. So, you know, people today can actually access these practices right from their own home. And there's a lot of really wonderful teaching and guidance available. That's so cool. Well, could you maybe share in in your own experience in terms of sort of, you know, back here stateside, thinking about the, well, you tell me, first of all, do you find that you go into and out of a regular habitual meditative practice or is it like stone cold, 100% solid? So it's pretty much a regular part of my life at this point. That doesn't mean that I sit for 45 minutes every day without fail. You know, things get busy sometimes. I've got an early morning appointment. I try to sit quietly for at least a minute or two, no matter what's happening, just to kind of touch into that space. But what is the case is that the level of clarity and awareness that's present in my mind is much greater because of the many years of mindfulness practice. And so even when I'm not meditating formally, there's a connection with mindfulness that's happening. And that's the result of of practice. Now, I would love for you to expand upon that sort of clarity and awareness, sort of like the the result or or the product, if you will, the the, the outcome from from having done it either in a day, like right afterwards, or o- over years. You know, could you sort of just make that a real clear contrast or distinction in terms of non meditating? My brain is kind of like this versus meditating. I experience this other opposite thing instead. Sure. Yeah. So we can characterize the benefits of meditation in two or three key ways. And this is this comes straight out of a lot of the research that's been done. So one is a t- emotional regulation. So for example, if one's not meditating, we might find that things get us going a lot more easily we get reactive we pop off at someone we you know we're short or testy uh, things get to us easily uh, meditation uh, mindfulness meditation helps to decrease emotional reactivity so that we are more aware of the emotions that we experience and have more space inside to tolerate any discomfort and choose how we respond rather than reacting impulsively based on how we feel in the moment. And as all of us know, that's a really useful skill in life in all situations, whether we're talking about our primary relationship, our family, or our work. Being able to be in a stressful or demanding situation where something comes up that triggers us or makes us angry or makes us upset or fearful or a lot of anxiety or anticipation to have the capacity to still think clearly and not be pushed around by those emotions, that's huge. So that's one major benefit. Oh, that is huge. And I'd love to, you know, just that phrase there, nice, that the space to tolerate discomfort, 
we got a bunch of people who like learning, listening to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. And we've heard it said many, many times associated with growth occurs in discomfort. You're learning something new. You're kind of clueless and feel dumb. Yes. Uh, Stephen Covey talking about the comfort zone versus the growth zone, which is intrinsically uncomfortable. So, so that just sounds so huge right there is if we can tolerate greater discomfort, then our, our whole ability to, to learn, grow, develop just, I mean, we might, I don't know, I'm going to throw a number out, see how it feels. You might double or triple your capacity to grow if you double or triple your capacity to tolerate discomfort. Absolutely. Yeah. And the, the phrase that I like to use comes from a colleague of mine is we talk about the zone of strategic discomfort. So if we're too comfortable, we don't learn, we don't grow because we're just going along and everything's fine. However, if we're too uncomfortable, we also don't learn because it's overwhelming. So there's this zone in the middle of strategic discomfort where it's uncomfortable enough that we're forced to actually look at things and question them and pay more attention. And so that's what the training of mindfulness does, is it creates a space in which we can study our own mind, our own habits, our our own reactions, and really start to come into contact with those places that we get uncomfortable and learn, how do I respond here? What's my go-to strategy? How do I develop more patience, more resilience, more stability inside so that I have more choice? And this is one of the central principles behind mindfulness practice, Pete, which is the more aware we are, the more choice we have. So mindfulness practice increases awareness. It increases awareness of our emotions. It increases awareness of our thoughts. It increases self-awareness. Our attention is sharper in terms of being able to observe around us and pick up more information from others and our environment. And when we have that awareness and information, that allows us to make better choices. And uh, all of those things translate directly into our ability to be awesome at our job, as your podcast you know, likes to likes to say, because we have more access to our own intelligence and resources inside. That's good. That's good. All right. So you said three. I, uh, I'm going to make sure I'm segmenting or following your, your train. Did we cover one or did we cover two? We did covered we cover one. We covered All emotional right. regulation. More. So the second one is something called attentional stability, which is a fancy way of saying focus or ability to pay attention or concentration. So one of the one of the skills that's developed through mindfulness practice is the ability to stay aware of a chosen activity or object. So we talked about your mind before and after meditation. So I remember when I was in college, before I started meditating, reading the same paragraph over and over again, sometimes five or six times, because my mind would keep wandering. And it would take a lot longer to get a certain task done because I wasn't able to stay on task, to stay on track. So mindfulness develops that capacity to be focused, to choose where we put our attention and keep it there. And again, that translates into all areas of our life, whether it's personal or professional, whether we're wanting to read or study or write or even listen in a meeting and be able to keep track of the information that's coming without losing focus. Yes, that, that's certainly helpful in uh, lots of things. I dig it. And yeah. what's the third? So the third is self-awareness. The third is being able to understand and be aware of our own experience, our own mind, 
So one of the one of the other kind of common ways of talking about mindfulness practice is that this quality of mindfulness, which we haven't defined, so maybe let me take a moment to just do that now. Mindfulness is the ability to be aware of what's happening in the moment in a clear, balanced, and non-reactive way. So, All right. Okay, so it's, it's not just knowing what's happening, but it's knowing what's happening in this particular way where there's clarity and there's a kind of balance inside. We're not getting pulled around or reactive just because of something that's happening in our environment internally or externally. So what one of the main things mindfulness does is it helps us to tell the difference between what's actually happening and the stories that we're telling ourselves about what's happening. And so this is where the self-awareness comes in. We start to see how our thoughts, our moods, our emotions, our interpretations begin to influence and color our experience. This is this is really important. It's like our mind are a set of glasses through which everything is being filtered. So, you know, there is nothing that we experience in life. There's nothing that we hear, see, taste, smell, or touch that doesn't involve our mind. And so if our mind is adding interpretations and opinions and biases to those experiences and we're not aware of it, that's going to affect how well we live, how well we do our job, the quality of our relationships, the quality of happiness and well-being we experience in our life. So, for example, how many of us have had the experience of working someplace and somebody uh, walks in and they don't say good morning or you catch a weird look on their face and all of a sudden we're like, oh, my God, they don't like me. They're out They're out to get me, you know. I know it's, it's that project we did last week. They're not happy with it. And we start spinning, right? We make this whole story and, it's, and we don't even realize what just happened, that all that happened was actually we walked in and we didn't hear them say hello or we didn't make eye contact and that everything else is extra. It's all thoughts and fears and interpretation. And so that's happening a lot of our lives that we're living in the reality of our stories and our beliefs and our interpretations. And the more we develop mindfulness, the more we see those for what they are. And then we can actually evaluate, okay, which ones which ones are helpful? Which ones are maybe likely to be true? And which ones are just getting in my way or tripping me up? That's good. Uh, that, that, that's potent. So I think you've really painted a nice picture there associated with what good looks like when you're sort of with it, and then what uh, the the not so great default can look like. Yeah. So you know, I I love it. You mentioned studies a couple times. Does could you share? Is there maybe one or two or three studies that have like an impressive quantified result that that uh, you'd like to drop? I'm happy to answer the question. I want to say one more thing on your last question before we go there. Okay. You said something like the difference between what's, you know... Like when you're on on the meditation train versus uh, off Exactly, the exactly. Yeah. And the one thing that I want to add to that that's really important is that the being on the meditation train doesn't mean that we don't still have negative thoughts or interpretations or anxiety come up. 
It means that we're able to be aware of those and have some choice about how much space they take up inside so that they're not running the show. And that's really key distinction because if we have an expectation that, oh, all this stuff is going to go away and I'll never have to feel anxious or compare or, you know, insecure again, that might not be realistic. But what, what is very attainable is being able to put those things in context and not be so oppressed by them. And, you know, how much of the time do we, are we our own worst enemy in terms of being able to really fulfill our potential? So I just wanted to make that really clear before we move on to the research question. Okay, thank yeah. you. So I'll, I'll share a little bit of what I know about studies with the caveat that I'm not a scientist and I'm not a researcher. So just to give you an analogy, you know, I'm a meditation teacher. Uh, and so I teach people how to practice mindfulness. And I teach people how to practice communication, how to bring those two together in their relationships, how to use mindfulness, not just for one's own mind, but also in your relationships in life. And it's a little bit like the difference between being a musician who plays music and being a sound engineer who records the music and knows how to get the right frequencies and levels set. So I don't deal with the sound engineering. I just play the music. So having said that, one of the interesting things that's happening these days is they're doing what are called meta-analyses. So they're individual research studies that are done that have a specific sample size, and those carry some weight. But a meta-analysis aggregates the data over 20, 30, 40, 50, or more individual research studies and then looks at trends. And so within scientific research, a meta-analysis can often carry more weight because it's drawing on a much larger sample size. And the meta-analyses are, sh are showing really strong, consistent evidence for benefits in decrease in cognitive and emotional reactivity for decreases in mind wandering and rumination, so like getting lost in thoughts and sort of spinning inside with worry and anxiety, and uh, self-compassion and kindness. So those are some of the qualities that are coming out. But a couple of my favorite, favorite studies. So one it has to do with the effect of mindfulness training on kindness and uh, altruism. So they gave, they gave people uh, three weeks of mindfulness training, not a, not a long time. And then they said they were going to participate in a research study. So they get to the waiting room and they're waiting to go. Uh, the one person comes in from the study, a participant, and they're waiting to go in to do the research study. But what they don't know is that the waiting room is actually where the research study is happening. So they come in and there are three chairs Two of them are occupied with people who work for the research team, but they don't know this. So they sit down in the third chair. Now they're waiting to go in. A few moments later, somebody comes in on crutches with a boot on one of their feet, also a, an actor in the study. And they visibly kind of sigh, noticing that there's, you know, there's no place to sit down. So they do this with everyone who participated in the study and with the control group who received like three weeks of cognitive training with no mindfulness. And what they found was that people who received mindfulness training gave up their seat at a rate two times as often as others. And that was verified by another study. So, you know, it just, it points to very clearly, you know, when we're more aware of our own thoughts and feelings and body, 
it increases empathy. We become more aware of other people and their and how it is for them and say, oh, wow, you know, here, sit down, please take my seat. Well, now I'm so curious to know what the baseline rate is of, of non-meditators. It had to be less than 51% if it, if it was doubled <laughs> right. by the meditators. So that's, that's not so encouraging I for know, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. humanity. <laughs> right. Right. But there is a, a pathway. Okay, so that is the, yeah. the, bright, uh, the bright spot there. That's yeah. a fun one. Thanks. And you yeah. said there's another. Yeah, the, the other's a less, less of a story there, but six weeks of mindfulness training has been shown to uh, decrease uh, implicit bias against minorities. So that's pretty powerful to think about the effect on one's mind there. And uh, another one, so these are, uh, they also do a lot of studies on something called loving kindness practice which is another form of mental training that's related to mindfulness, but different. It's cultivating an intentional state of goodwill and kindness. And uh, just 10 minutes of this kind of meditation has been shown to have a relaxing effect on one's ability to shift gears into a more relaxed parasympathetic state. Another study showing that you know a number of weeks of loving-kindness meditation Participants reported significant increases in well-being and, you know, like contentment and joy and gratitude in their lives. Yeah. So just, oh, and then here's, here's another one. You like this. I was just reading last night. One of the, a lot of the research that's happening or a certain amount of it that's really fascinating is where uh, scientists, neuroscientists are taking meditation masters, right? So people who are considered like Olympics levels of meditation, more than 10,000 hours, uh, and doing uh, fMRIs, functional uh, imaging scans of their brain and measuring different things. And so one Tibetan teacher, they've done some different scans of his brain over the course of the last eight to 10 years. And what they're finding is that his brain is aging more slowly than like 99% of people in his age group. He's in the like 100th percentile of the rate of, of aging in, in brain cells. And so that's really fascinating to me to see that the potential for training our minds with uh, meditation and mindfulness can even have an effect on the long-term vitality of our mind. Well, that that's compelling. It makes you want to kick it up right now it's <laughs> reap those benefits 50 years from now yeah yeah absolutely well and so then you mentioned you know loving kindness and its impact on on relationships can you can you share a little bit of how how that can pop up in the workplace sure well i think that the our culture and our society tends to be very competitive and i think in many workplaces uh, my sense is that that carries over and that there's a sense of of competition and we are uh, against one another and you know not exclusively right but that that can infiltrate it can get into the workplace and what i've seen in my own life and from the things that i've i've read and the stories that i know two things are true one we can accomplish more when we work together as human beings you know we can do great things when we are supporting one another and celebrating one another rather than competing or fighting with one another. So if you're looking at any kind of a company or team within a company that's has a certain goal or charge, when there's goodwill present, when there's a quality of uh, respect, mutual respect and trust, 
uh, and empathy, you can draw on the strengths and the ingenuity and creativity of each person in that team a lot more. So yeah. that's that's one aspect. The other aspect is, you know, Dale Carnegie's famous book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. It's like you catch you catch more flies with honey than with what's the saying? <laughs> vinegar? Yeah, it? that's it. Vinegar. You catch more flies. So you know, in our own relationships, when um, when we're kind, other people are kind, tend to be kind back to us. You know, when we approach a situation with goodwill and an open an open mind, that energy tends to come back around to us. And even when it doesn't, even when it doesn't, it feels better in ourself. And so we're enhancing the quality of our own life and we're increasing our own well-being directly. Oh, that's good. Well, it sounds like to get into depth of that, we, we might just have to do this again, maybe when your your book comes out uh, December-ish, because I really want to dig into a, a little bit of the, hey, if, if someone's never meditated before, what do you do? Right. <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah. So there's a few a few simple pointers or suggestions. I think the first is just understanding the main principle behind the practice of meditation. And the main principle is that our minds are designed to learn and whatever we do with them, they will learn. So if we spend our time thinking about things that uh, are stressful, if we spend our time feeling aggravated and rushed or doubting ourselves, we are actively shaping and training our mind to feel stressed and aggravated and rushed. Those are just a few examples, right? The, um, if you look back to the origins of mindfulness meditation in the Buddhist tradition, there's a quote from the early text that captures this really well that says, whatever the mind frequently thinks about and ponders, that will become its habit. That will become its inclination. And so this is the modern day version of this is neuroplasticity, neurons that fire together, wire together. So our brains can change in their shape and function based on how we use them. So this, this kind of fundamental plasticity or malleability of our brain means that we can use the mental training techniques of mindfulness practice to shape and train our brain in a different way. So the exercises of mindfulness meditation are about training our mind to be aware of what's happening in the moment in a clear and balanced way. So that's the underlying, that's the underlying principle. The practice itself involves sitting or standing in a comfortable position. At first, you can also do it while walking. It's helpful to start when you're still. Turning your attention inwards, sometimes that might mean closing your eyes. Other times it might just mean withdrawing your attention from what's going on around you, the sights and the sounds and so forth, and just turning your attention inwards and seeing if you can feel your breathing. So right. when we breathe in, can we be aware of that? When we breathe out, can we be aware of that? That's the most basic mindfulness meditation exercise is, is feeling the breath. And it's important to let your breath be natural. We're not trying to control our breath in any way or breathe in a special way. But what we're doing is we're using the breath as a foil, as a tool to sharpen our awareness, to learn how to stay connected to what's happening in the present moment. And 
as you know, and as anyone who tries this will very quickly see, we're not really good at that. Our mind tends to wander off really quickly. And that's okay. That's part of it. That's why it's a practice. So every time we notice that our mind has wandered, that moment of noticing is really powerful. That's actually the key moment of mindfulness practice, because that's the moment where awareness is actually growing. We just woke up. We just realized that we were off task. So in that moment, it's a cause to actually appreciate, oh, great, uh, this is working. Like I'm becoming more aware. And then we just gently come back to feeling the breath. That's the most basic practice. And and that I'm glad you said that. I was going to prompt you to do it if you didn't, (laughs) because that point that you made in in the Simple Habit app when I heard you, it was just so powerful for me because it's, I guess, a little bit of what I was doing before in my uh, noviceness was I'd be like, oh, darn it. Ah, you know, I I thought of something. I'm, I'm screwing up. And you just completely turn that on its head, reframing it to, well, the sheer fact that you did notice that means you're growing in awareness, not that you you screwed up. And, and that was exactly. so, it was so funny. The first time you said that, I was like, no, that's not what that means. Like, oh, yeah. <laughs> and so it it's was a, a big eye-opening sentence for me. So thank you for that. You're welcome. Yeah, it's a win. Every time we remember, our, our awareness is, is growing. The other important thing I'll mention for your listeners out there in terms of if you're experimenting with mindfulness practice, or even if you have a mindfulness practice already, the other thing that's important to remember is that because our minds are so fluid and can be shaped, that the way that we do these techniques is really important. So in other words, if we take on this practice and we get excited or we're going to try it and we're doing it with a lot of self-judgment and uh, tightness and we're pushing and we're trying really hard, not only are we going to exhaust ourselves really quickly and probably give it up, but we're reinforcing those habits in our mind. So how we practice mindfulness is as important as that we practice mindfulness, the technique itself. It's like it's like any other tool that you use. How you hold the tool is really important. And if you're not holding the tool properly, you're not going to be able to use it well. You might even do some damage with it. So as the saying goes, practice doesn't make perfect. Practice makes permanent. So it's important to see, like, how am I approaching this? Am I approaching this with a sense of curiosity, lightheartedness, patience, rather than, okay, now I'm going to like really do this and I'm going to like be great at it and push myself. And yeah, and that's, that's where the transformation happens is that we learn how to be patient, relaxed, kind, steady, balanced by noticing, oh my God, I'm totally like driving myself nuts here, just trying to feel my breath. Why is this so hard? Oh, I can relax. You know, I don't have to try so hard. And so begins the learning that unfolds through the practice. You know, I really like when you say in in the app, in terms of the stances of, of nowhere to go, nothing to do, uh, being friendly and curious. And, and as we're talking about neuroplasticity and, and the mental inclination, it's like, those are, those are things I want to experience in my brain frequently and and maybe experience less frequently than I'd like to. So I, I think that's really cool how how that ties together and is just uh just very pleasant. So do you have any any pro tips on 
how to step into that stance mm-hmm. effectively. Sure. Yeah. I'll offer one of those and then, and then link it to our work in the workplace, uh, the relevance in the workplace. So I make a huge emphasis in my teaching and in my own personal meditation practice to start from a good place. And I actually have a free guided meditation on my website called Finding Ease that's, uh, that shares this. It shares some instructions on this. It's a free download if people sign up for uh, my email as they get this meditation. And it's basically when you sit down to meditate, see if you can set, set an intention inside to just say, okay, like this time is for me. I don't have to do anything now. All of the projects, all of the plans, all the issues, I can just set those aside. And can I find a place of just being able to feel relaxed or at ease right now in this moment? Not forever, just just for right now, just to take, whether it's five minutes or 10 minutes, however long you're going to practice for, just to take this time off from other things. That doesn't mean that stuff's not going to come up. But it just means that we're starting from a place of letting go and just arriving in a place of like, ah, I can just chill out here. And so it can take time to to find that. Uh, it's like finding that note. You know, how do I hit that note inside? But we all know that place. We'd go nuts if we didn't. You know, it's it's that feeling when you're with a good friend that you haven't seen for a while and you're just sitting out on the porch and taking or taking a walk or it's the feeling on like you know Saturday afternoon on the weekend when you're you're with your family or you're you know or you're out by yourself just enjoying a sunset and everything just kind of slows down for a little bit and gets quiet it's remembering that feeling and that sense that that's always available to us in the moment if we can just step back from things. And so starting from that place, and that takes practice. It takes practice, but it's totally, uh, it's totally doable. Now, how does this relate to having a job <laughs> and going into the office every day? So I think that what I've seen in myself and other people at work is that the number of demands on our time and energy are greater than the number of hours in a day. Yes, And that gets stressful over time because there's always a list that's growing faster than we can accomplish the items. Okay, so this is where mindfulness comes in really valuable because what mindfulness does is it allows us to be more present. I was going to say fully present, but that's what we're aiming for, but at least to be more present with what we're doing in the moment. So rather than worrying about the 10 things that we're not doing right now that we actually can't do right now because we're not doing them, we're doing something else. Instead of worrying about those or rushing to try to get to them, we can be fully present or as present as possible with the task at hand. And that has a few really positive effects. Number one, it allows us to do that task more efficiently and more skillfully. We have access to more of our intelligence and creativity because we're 100% there or as close to 100% as we can. Number two, it helps us keep from burning out. One of the reasons we burn out is that we're always trying to be two or three steps ahead of ourselves, and that's just not possible. So when we're able to just do one thing at a time completely, 
we're conserving our energy because we're not pushing ourselves to be someplace where we're not. And so this, the, the kind of, to sum this up, like what's the essence of this? This In the Zen tradition, they say, when you're sweeping the garden, just sweep the garden. So there's that sense of like anything, and this is where mindfulness is more a way of life than something we do for five or 10 or 20 minutes in the morning. It's about being wholehearted in whatever we do. Our whole life is having an effect on our mind, everything that we do, how we are when we're driving and sitting in traffic. If we're gripping the steering wheel with white knuckles, well, we're actually strengthening impatience and anxiety in our nervous system. We're, we're enhancing those qualities, right? So if we can, we, we can take any activity, whether it's walking to the car, chopping vegetables, answering an email, washing our dishes, and use that to strengthen qualities of clarity, focus, calm, presence, resilience, by how we perform that activity. Now, could you expand upon answering an email in uh, the white knuckle driving steering wheel example is, is, a, is a nice visual. And so can we get the contrast between a not so happy to the nervous system way of replying to an email versus a, yeah. a delightful way to reply Absolutely. to an email. I see it. In, I see it myself all the time. I get a lot of emails and sometimes I see myself firing off responses. And I, because of my practice, I, I notice the tension in my body. So I'll notice my shoulders are hunched up. I'm like, as I'm typing, I'm like, my fingers are pounding on the keys and Maybe my breath is tight or shallow, and there's this energy, this little like impulse or push inside to be going more quickly, getting on to the next one, on to the next one, on to the next one. And what I find is if I just take literally like half a moment, you know, just just enough space to like breathe in and breathe out once. My shoulders relax. I can feel my body sitting on the chair instead of being like up out of my body through my eyes in the computer screen. And then I can respond to the email with ease. And that's less exhausting. Ease is a great word. It is. Yeah. And so I know that I know that you've you've shared with me that you guys are really big on like, you know, okay, how do I use this? Right. How do I take this into my life? I am a huge proponent of very simple practice called pausing. And as I just said, a pause can be as brief as one breath. It could be longer, it could be a minute or two. But the more we can make a habit of taking just really brief pauses throughout our day. As I said, it can really just be one breath. Like you sit down at your desk and before you turn on your computer, you know, just to take one breath or before your lunch break or before a big meeting. Those kinds of pauses can help us be more efficient with our energy during the day. It can enhance our quality of life. It can allow us to enjoy our work more instead of always being on the treadmill trying to get ahead. Yeah. And just, uh, just like you said, just feel more at ease inside. Oh, I love it. Thank you. A yeah. nice demonstration there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Well, well tell me, Oren, anything else you really want to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things? No, I'm good. Let's, let's move on. 
All right. Could you share with us a favorite quote, something that inspires you? Sure. One of my favorite quotes is from uh, Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, who wrote The Little Prince. Uh, This is from another one of his books called Wind, Sand, and Stars. And he wrote, It is idle, having planted an acorn in the morning, to expect to sit beneath the shade of an oak in the afternoon. And so for me, it just really points to the virtue of patience in our lives and how, you know, anything worthwhile doing uh, takes time and, uh, and takes patience. And that goes for, goes for mindfulness practice and it goes for, you know, any kind of creative project or uh, other pursuit. That's good. Thank you. And how about a favorite book? Gary Snyder has a book called The Practice of the Wild. It's a collection of essays that are, um, really wonderful reflections on what it is to be human and how our culture and society can interfere with realizing our potential, not only as individuals, but also as a, as a community and as a species. Mm, thank you. Yeah. And how about a favorite tool, something that helps you be awesome at your job? I'll, I'll share two. So one, uh, I use an app called Things that helps, helps me track my to-do lists that I find that very helpful. And, uh, well, <laughs> the subject of our podcast is the other tool. So mindfulness. <laughs> yeah, there's also, there's a lot of, in terms of pausing, there are many apps that you can get for, uh, computers, desktop, laptop, computer that give you a reminder periodically to pause. The one that I use is called timeout for, uh, for Max, but there's a whole host of those, and uh, it's hard to remember to pause. You know, workday is often so busy, so I rely on that sometimes to just help me to take a break periodically. Oh, thank you. And is there a particular nugget you share that seems to really connect and resonate with your students? Yeah, I mean, I come back to patience. The, the key to success is uh, patient, kind persistence. Just keep showing up, being patient, and uh, having that spirit of kindness towards oneself and others. All right. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? Yeah, my website's the best place, orangejsofer.com. You can also follow me on Twitter or Facebook. Same thing, orangejsofer, J-A-Y-S-O-F-E-R. And you have a final challenge or call to action for folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs? Sure, sure thing. Think about what's most important to you, why you're doing what you're doing. And then uh, every morning when you wake up, set a clear intention about how you want to show up at your job. What qualities do you want to bring to the work that you do and the people that you work with every day? Set that intention every morning. If you can, remember it halfway during the day at lunch, come back to it. And then at the end of the day, when you come back home, before you go to bed, just reflect back on the day and think, okay, when did I, when did I actually remember this? When was I able to come from this place inside? If you do that every day, even for a few weeks, you'll start to notice changes in, uh, in your work and in your quality of life. Perfect. Well, Orrin, thank you so much for, for sharing this. It sounds like there's a, a wealth of stuff to talk about in terms of the, the relationships and interconnectedness that's from this stuff. So I hope we can, we can chat again about some of this. Yeah. yeah, that'd be great. We can talk about how mindfulness applies uh, to communication, which is uh, what my book's on. It's coming out in December called Say What You Mean. 
Cool. Well, this has been a real treat. Thanks for all you do. I'll, I'll continue listening to your voice. <laughs> right on. In, in the app and keep on rocking. Thanks so much, Pete. You too. I really appreciate Oren's wisdom there and I really appreciate our sponsors. Check them out. The big aha that made me think I love this guy when listening to the Simple Habit app was when he said, every time we notice that our mind has wandered, the noticing is powerful. It's actually the moment where your awareness is growing. So not a moment for you to beat yourself up and go, ah, shoot, I screwed up. I'm no good at this. But, oh, hey, I noticed that. Cool. This is progress. And, and that just changed the whole dynamic for me. So I hope that and other tidbits were super helpful. Again, you can check out the show notes, the transcript, and the links that we have referenced here over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F292. And if you haven't already, I hope you'll push subscribe to hear from our next guest. It is Denise Dudley. Denise has loads of experience training and she goes into deep detail about body language stuff, eye contact, the research, all the little things that are just easy to overlook but can make a really big impact. So Hope to catch you there to chat with Denise. Until next time, peace. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.